Open your Bibles to Psalm 6 as we continue our journey through the Psalms. And so far it's been a, um, an enriching study for me personally. I hope that you have been encouraged and challenged through the Word of God over these last several weeks. We turn our attention to the sixth Psalm today. And I've titled this, Praying Through Discipline. And the reality is, is that our lives lived under the sovereignty of God will experience periods of discipline where we are being punished for our sin, we are being corrected and rebuked for our disobedience. But there are also periods in our life where we will be pruned by the Lord so that we can bear greater fruit. It can often be difficult for us to tell the difference between the discipline of the Lord and the pruning hand of the Lord. When there isn't overwhelmingly obvious sin in our life, we must ask ourselves, God, is there something in me that I am not seeing that is displeasing to you? Reveal that to me. I desire to repent and to turn away from that. And when we can't find anything, when God doesn't reveal anything to us, then we have to turn our attention then to the pruning hand of the Lord who desires to take us deeper in our walk with him, to produce greater fruit from our lives so that we can be a more significant blessing in the lives of other people. As we look at this psalm, we see that David is in a period of great turmoil internally. And it makes it very obvious to us that life is lived not only on the mountaintop, but life is also lived in the depth of the valley. Sometimes those valleys are long and sometimes they are deep. And sometimes there's seemingly no light coming from any place other than the end of the tunnel. But if we never experience the valleys of life, then we will never truly appreciate the mountaintop experiences that God has so wonderfully blessed us with. Make no mistake about it, we will go through the valleys. We can bring the valleys into our own lives by wandering away from the Lord. And sometimes God will lead us into these valleys because he wants to do something in us that he will not be able to do otherwise. So as we turn our attention to the sixth psalm, this is the first of seven penitential psalms. A penitential psalm is one that solicits a great crying out to God for confession of sin and for cleansing of sin. The other penitential psalms are 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. Now, what makes this one more difficult is that it isn't specifically identified in the psalm that David is confessing anything, although he has laid himself bare before the Lord. In the early church, these penitential psalms were often sung or read on the Wednesday before Easter, Ash Wednesday, as a part of their penance for sin. And we know within the Catholic tradition that came to mean something very different than it should have. But we cannot cannot definitively say what part of David's life this refers to. It could be that this is a continuation of God's dealing with David over his sin with Bathsheba and the death of Uriah. It could be something entirely different. We don't really know. It could be unrelated to sin. It could simply be the pruning hand of God desiring a deeper walk with David to bring about a greater blessing to his life and to the lives of the nation of Israel. So regardless of what what has brought this on, we will see, most importantly, the deep sorrow and the deep grief that David experienced. We'll see the crushing weight of conviction 
in David's life through physical and spiritual agony brought about by the Lord. But then we will also see the confidence that David has in the God that has loved him and has saved him. So let's look together in Psalm 6. Here's what God's word says to us today. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed, and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness, for there is no mention of you in death. And Sheol, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. So these 10 verses are going to be divided into four sections that will, that will provide the outline for us today. And so we'll begin in number one. We'll see the cry for mercy. There is a great cry coming forth from the heart and the life of David. It is this cry for mercy because David, number one, is being disciplined. He says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Now, I think it's important for us to recognize, and this can be so subtle that we overlook it, is that David is turning to the Lord in this very difficult time. Not everybody turns to the Lord when they are going through the valley. You know, it, I saw in my study this week that when Adam was confronted with his sin, he ran to the bushes. When Saul was confronted with his sin, he ran to the witches of Endor. When uh, Jonah received the call of the Lord and didn't want to obey, he ran to the ends of the earth to escape. But here we see David choosing to turn to the Lord. He cries out, O oh, Lord, what a great privilege it is that you and I have the ability to call upon the name of the Lord. Not a theoretical God, not a deity of sorts, but a loving Father who invites us to come before Him to find mercy and grace in our time of need. David is crying out to the Lord because of the discipline that he is undergoing. So we have synonymous terms here. We have the term rebuke, which means correction. And we have the word chasten, which means to discipline. And so we see that David writes these synonymously, as he will in just a moment, with the words wrath and anger. But it's important also to recognize that David is not asking for the absence of this discipline in his life. He's not saying, remove it from me. He's simply saying, Oh, Lord, can you decrease the severity of this discipline or this pruning that I am undergoing? It is so severe that David feels that he cannot survive it. It is so intense for him that he quantifies this discipline as anger and wrath, which means rage. It is the burning anger of the Lord. It isn't a simple rebuke. It isn't a polite slap on the wrist. It is, in David's experience, a burning anger, a rage that he is undergoing at the hand of the Lord. 
It feels to David as if God is dealing with him in a way that isn't merited and even feels unjust. Now, it's possible that David doesn't understand why the Lord is disciplining him the way that he does. Or it's possible that David feels like he has been disciplined long enough. Whatever the reasoning, he's simply asking God to decrease the severity of the pruning or the discipline he's undergoing in his life. I wonder if you have ever felt that way. Have you ever wanted to say to God, or perhaps even have said to God, when is enough enough? God, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't feel like this is merited. I don't feel like I've done anything to bring this upon myself. You see, when we suffer unjustly, or when we suffer in a way that seems to be far more severe than our expectation would consider, it is natural for us to ask God the question, can you please lighten up? I get it, but I don't think I can survive this any longer. It's a very real experience for us to go through as humans because we have a very finite understanding of an infinite God He sees and does what He wants to do for reasons that we may never fully see or experience. But nonetheless, God is at work in our lives all the time, disciplining us for our sin or pruning us for greater greater fruitfulness. But here's a couple of things that I thought about as we consider the discipline or the pruning hand of the Lord. Number one is that we must always stand firm in the sovereignty of God. You see, when you stand firm in the sovereignty of God, you say this, you have the right to control my life in a way that is fitting to you. That's a hard statement to make. A very difficult prayer to pray, to give God the right to exercise His authority over our life in any way He sees fit. And oh, by the way, He does that anyway. But we must stand firm in the sovereignty of God. Secondly, we must always stand firm in the goodness of God. God is not a vindictive being. God isn't out there making our lives difficult for no reason. He isn't making us the butt of some heavenly joke. He isn't intentionally mistreating us because He's bored. We must stand firm in the goodness of God. As we stand firm in the goodness of God, I am reminded of this, that you and I do not deserve any good thing from the Lord. Not a thing. But in our culture, most especially in this day and age, we have such a feeling of entitlement that, hey, when I give my life to you, God, aren't you then obligated to make me happy? Well, that isn't God's obligation. We don't deserve anything from Him. And yet, even the most heinous of sinners, God still blesses richly. And God blesses us richly during the times of pruning and during the times of discipline. Thirdly, we must stand firm in the purposes of God. It is not God's goal to make us happy. It is God's purpose to make us godly. 
our sanctification, our being conformed to the image of Christ, is the chief purpose that God has for our lives. And so because that is God's chief purpose for us, He is going to discipline us. He is going to prune us because He loves us too much to leave us alone, to leave us the way that we are. God disciplines us because of our sin, and it's easy for us, it's easy for us to forget that our sin can anger God. I, I can think of so many times in the Old Testament history where God's anger burned against the Israelites and some calamity came. Our sin angers God, and because He is a holy God and a just God, He will discipline us for our sin. We're reminded of Hebrews, of this in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Isn't that right? It can speak an amen to that. Yet to those who have been trained by it, those who have been trained by the disciplining hand of the Lord, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You know, there's been things that I've experienced in my life that I would not wish on anybody. The things that God has allowed to happen in my life, I would have never asked to happen. But the purposes that God designs to come out of my life from those experiences will likely not come in any other way. And so as we rest in the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God and the purposes of God, when we go through the discipline, we can always remember that God loves me and God is not going to allow me to run on this rope of sin any longer. He will discipline me for my sin. God will also prune us for greater greater spiritual growth. He desires to remove the things from our life that have a greater priority or are more central to our lives than He is or His plans and His purposes are for us. God wants Him and Him alone to be the center of our lives. I'm reminded of these verses in James. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I don't consider my joys, my, my trials to be joy. I, I don't, excuse me, I don't consider my trials to be filled with great joy. They are hard. They are painful. They are unwelcomed and unwanted. And sometimes they go on for really long periods of time. But you see, when we really believe in the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God and the purposes of God, when we find ourselves in these periods of pruning, we will cooperate with God and seek to learn from Him what it is He desires to teach us and what it is he wants to purge from our lives. So here we have David who has found himself under the hand of God, either for discipline or for pruning, and we really don't know which. But David is being disciplined. Number two, David is broken. David is absolutely broken. He pleads for the mercy of God to be shown to him. He says in verse 2, Be gracious to me, Oh, Lord. You know, it's interesting that David being the king of Israel, the Lord's anointed, he didn't come and boast of his position. He didn't boast 
of His righteousness. He didn't boast in His goodness. He simply pleaded with God to be gracious with Him. He didn't argue with God about what God was doing in His life. He doesn't claim this unique privilege that He has as the Lord's anointed to be spared from this experience. He comes before the Lord absolutely and completely broken and in need of the Lord's mercy. I want you to circle or underline or put an asterisk, something next to that portion of the verse, because I truly believe that the discipline of the Lord and the pruning hand of the Lord desires to break us so that we will plead for His mercy. We will cry out to Him in a way that we haven't, perhaps in months or even years. But David is pleading for the Lord's mercy in his life, even in the absence of some egregious and obvious sin in our life, we are always in need of the Lord's mercy because you and I are completely and thoroughly sinful. We dress up on Sunday mornings. We speak the Christian jargon. We can quote a few verses. We can do a few good things. And somehow we diminish our thoroughly being sinful, and through that, we seem to diminish the need for a refreshing sense of God's mercy in our life. I would say that, in my opinion, in the church today, there's far too little brokenness. There are far too few cries for the mercy of God. But God's people are fixated on the hand of God, the blessing of God, the goodness of God, and not so much the purposes of God that will bring about greater righteousness in our lives. Well, David's brokenness is expressed in three ways. And David is speaking in metaphorical terms here. I don't believe, like some authors and some commentators believe, that David is speaking of a literal physical illness. But David is describing the physical symptoms that he is experiencing about the spiritual grief and sorrow that he is encountering because of the discipline and the pruning hand of the Lord. Before we get into these, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever been so overwhelmed by grief and sorrow that you felt physically ill. Yeah, you know that feeling. Some people can become so overwhelmed by the sorrow and grief in their life that they're nearly paralyzed. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. They don't know what to say. They just exist because they are so overwhelmed by the sorrow in their life. So this is what David is describing, and it's not uncommon in David's writings and in the Old Testament in general to speak of physical symptoms to correlate to a spiritual reality that they're dealing with in their life. David expresses his brokenness in these ways. Letter A, he is weak. He says in verse 2, For I am pining away. It's a phrase that is often used to describe the leaves that are withering on a tree and ready to dry out and fall to the ground, or a crop that has not been harvested, and it's dying on the branches. David is weak. 
He has no stamina. He is the strong man who slew the great giant Goliath. He is the same strong boy who would kill lion, a lion who came after the sheep that he was guarding. This is a strong man who is now brought low before the Lord and says, I am physically wasting away because of this discipline and this pruning that I am experiencing in my life. Letter B, he is physically hurting. He says in verse 2, Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. That word dismayed in this context means to be terrified. David's bones are terrified. His spiritual brokenness hurts so much that he can feel it in his bones. The strongest part of our bodies is our bones. It is the framework for our physical being. And what David is saying is, I am so weak, I am so overwhelmed by this sorrow and this grief that I can feel it to the depth of my bones. Everything I do, God, it hurts. Letter C, David is distraught. He says in verse 3, And my soul is greatly dismayed or greatly terrified, but you, O Lord, how long? Can you hear it in his voice? How long, O God? He feels this weakening pain in the depth of his soul. He is greatly terrified by what he's experiencing at the hand of the Lord. David feels as if he's going to die. But you, O Lord, how long? David can't even complete the sentence. I envision David's brokenness is expressed, as we'll look in these verses just a little bit later, as he talks about swimming in his bed and dissolving the couch with his tears. I would almost envision David pausing as he penned these words and falling to his knees and just sobbing with all that he had, crying out for the Lord. David says, when will this end, God? I can't take this anymore. But in that, David says, Lord, I need you. But you, O Lord, how long? David expresses his need for the Lord. And number two now, the cry for restoration. David is being disciplined. David is broken. He feels as if he's about to die. And so David now cries out for restoration. Number one, David is separated from the Lord. He feels as if God has gone away, that God has left him, and he is simply by himself. He says in verse 4, Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. David has felt the separation very deeply and completely. The disciplining hand of the Lord, the pruning hand of the Lord can often make us ask this question, God, where are you? God, where have you gone? I've never needed you more than I need you now, and I don't sense your presence. I feel like you have vanished. Return to me, O Lord, and rescue my soul. The word soul here in this context refers to David's life. 
David feels he feels that he is about to die unless the Lord returns to him and restores to him the fellowship and relieves him from this hand of discipline or this hand of pruning. David feels like his life needs to be rescued in the presence of the Lord. You know, we can feel very separated from the Lord when our prayers are not being answered in the way that we would like them to be. We pray for seemingly good things. We pray for jobs. We pray for financial stability. We pray for the health and well-being of our children. We pray for stronger marriages. We pray for a better witness in the community. We pray for all these seemingly good things. And sometimes those prayers aren't getting answered in the way that we would like them to be. Most especially when we're in these times of discipline or pruning and we're asking God, we're praying to God to relieve us from this discipline. And God says, it's not time. When we don't see the relief from the difficulty and the unwanted hardship that's going on in our lives, we can often conclude that God has gone away. So David's perception is this separation. Because there's no specific sin attached in this psalm, in this part of David's life, we really don't know exactly what's going on. But we know that David's perception is that God has gone away. But we know that the Lord is always with us, right? He never leaves us and He never forsakes us. Even in the times when God is disciplining us or when He is pruning us, God is always there. This is not David's experience And I would venture to say that when we're in these difficult times, we can sometimes wrongly conclude that God has left and I am on my own. David is praying that God would return to him because he feels separated. Secondly, David needs rescued. He says in verse 2, Save me because of your loving kindness. He has cried out for the mercy of God and here he asks God to rescue him based upon this mercy. That word loving kindness means exactly what it sounds like. It is the enduring, eternal love of God. The undeserved love of God. This is what David wants in his life and this is what David understands is going to rescue him. He says, save me because of your loving kindness. The phrase save me shouldn't be understood in terms of being saved. It isn't the request for salvation because after all, he is the Lord's anointed. He is the King of Israel. But it is because he feels this intense separation from God and because he is so overwhelmed by these circumstances, by this hand of discipline or pruning, his request is that God would rescue him and relieve him because he feels as if he is about to die. It is only upon the love and the mercy of God that we can approach him, that we can know him, that we can call upon him, and that we can see him bless us and provide for us in the way that he sees fit. Again, David isn't boasting about anything that he has done. He's not boasting about who he is as the king of Israel. He is simply appealing to the loving kindness and the mercy of God to rescue him and to restore the fellowship between them. In verse 5, we see this 
phrase here that seems out of context in some respects. For there is no mention of you in death. And Sheol, who will give you thanks? Now, in a very cursory reading of this verse, we can conclude that David is questioning the afterlife. And that's not it at all. The Old Testament does not deny the afterlife. It just isn't as developed as it is in the New Testament. We should never develop a theology about anything based upon one single verse. Now, David's phrasing here is in the context of the discipline and the pruning hand of the Lord and being so overwhelmed by grief through the pain and the suffering that he mentions this, that there is no thanks to you in Sheol. So David's point is this, is that from his current perspective... He could praise God more fully and could serve Him more completely than than if He were alive than He could if He were dead. Than if He were dead. I can praise You greater. I can serve You more completely if I am dead, because there is no thanks expressed to You in those nether regions, in the in the thrones of death. Again, we can't develop a theology on the afterlife here. But it was common in the Old Testament to feel like our present physical life was more worthy to the Lord than was the afterlife. So David has cried out for the mercy of God. He has cried out for restoration. And now we see a number three. We see the cry of desperation in David's life. David is absolutely and completely exhausted. He says in verse 6, I am weary with my sighing. Sighing is equated to groaning. When we can no longer utter the words, when there are no words that can express the depth of our pain and our anguish, we will groan or we will sigh or we will just make unintelligible sounds. These are the groans of feelings of futility because David is absolutely exhausted. He has no words left to say. He is absolutely and completely worn out. He is at the end of himself, and he feels as if death is imminent. We can often get overwhelmed by our difficulties. And God's people will often groan, but God's people are not to grumble. It is human for us to groan. It is natural for us to feel like we are at the end of ourselves, but we then turn our attention back to the Lord because he is our hope and he is our help. David is exhausted. Number two, David is grieved very deeply. He expresses this here in verses 6 and 7. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. Now there's obvious hyperbole being expressed here. Can't really make your bed float from tears, but that's the way David feels. And our couches won't dissolve from our tears, but David is saying that I have cried so much that these places where I lay myself before you are saturated with my grief. All David has been able to do is cry and cry and cry. So much so that he would not be surprised if, in fact, his his bed did float or his couch did dissolve under those tears. 
His eyes are swollen and they're bloodshot. And anybody who would see David would know that he has been overwhelmed by this grief. You know, when you begin to cry and you sob, it begins to affect your vision, doesn't it? It makes it difficult to have a clear perspective. So as crying affects our physical vision, this spiritual grief begins to affect our spiritual vision. And when we are so overwhelmed by our difficulty and our hardship and our circumstances, we can get a very inaccurate perception of who God is. If this is God and these are my circumstances, and I look through God through my circumstances, God is going to be very distorted, isn't he? But if I look at God and see my circumstances through my relationship with the Lord, then my circumstances come in better focus. And I will have a better perspective on those circumstances that I am facing. I think it's our natural tendency to look at God through our circumstances. And we begin to question who God is and what God is doing and why he is doing this. And if we're not careful, it can lead us to begin to question his love and his goodness and his mercy and his presence and even our salvation. Many of people have had very distorted views of God because of the difficulties they face in their life. And they have said this, if this is what a relationship with God is really like, then I want nothing to do with it. So the mention of adversaries here could be that God's hand of discipline was coming into David's life at the hands of other people. It could also mean that David's enemies knew of his difficulty and his hardship, and they were heaping on their criticism. And we'll see adversaries mentioned again in verse 8 and verse 10. But David's grief is so severe and so overwhelming that it is crippling him in absolutely every way. But despite this... David still has the ability to make a final cry, and that is a cry of victory. This is one of the things that I love about the Psalms and the depth of the human emotion that you see is that on the one hand you can be at the very end of yourself and still possess a confident faith in God. And so this is where we find David here. It is this cry of victory. In an apparent statement to his enemies, David says in verse 8, Depart from me, all you who do iniquity. It is unknown if David had been running around with godless people, if he had been influenced by these workers or these doers of iniquity. We really don't know. But what we do know is that David is making a very clear statement here. It is a statement of repentance to his enemies who were insulting him or to those that he might have been running around with. And that was very simply this. David is saying that I want nothing to do with sin or sinful men. I want God alone. I want nothing more than an intimate relationship with this God who loves me and this God who has rescued me. David is very confident in the Lord in not only his returning, but in the answering of these prayers. Number one, David is confident that God has heard his heart. He says, For the Lord has heard the voice 
of my weeping. The voice of weeping here isn't necessarily just the sorrow, but it, and it isn't the mere outpouring of emotion that God has heard, but it is the heart of a repentant man, of a man who wants the Lord more than anything else. It is a man who will forsake everything the world has to offer in order to please the Lord. You know, this is the exact same sentiment that we read in the New Testament as we look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. You know, that's not a common statement made by individuals who have gone through great periods of discipline and pruning in their life. You see, God wants to strip us away from these things that we hold so near and dear to our life that are worldly. They really don't draw us to the Lord. And it is this example that we see not only in the writings of Paul, but also in the heart of David here. I want you more than anything else. He is confident that God has heard his heart. Secondly, he is confident that God has heard his prayer. And verse 9, the Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. David's prayers expressed through his words, through the groaning and the weeping, have been heard by the Lord. But not only did David believe that God heard it, he believed that God had received it, meaning that God was going to act upon the request that David made, that David made, meaning that rescue and relief and deliverance was right around the corner. That God was going to be merciful towards him. That God was going to restore him to a right relationship. That he would sense the presence of the Lord. That he would relieve him of the hardship that he was facing. And in this confidence that David states about the Lord hearing his heart and answering his prayer, we see this final statement made to his enemies, this final victory that God would give him in verse 10. He says, All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. His enemies will see his deliverance. They will see God at work in his life and they will be put to shame. Not by the disciplining hand of the Lord will his enemies be put to shame, but the enemies of David will be put to shame by the judging hand of the Lord. We would do well to remember the confidence that David has in his God when he's going through an experience that he heals will bring about his actual physical death, that you and I would maintain a confidence in the Lord. It is always a blessing to me to talk with people who are going through the worst that life has to offer, and they're faithful to praise the Lord. They're faithful to thank the Lord. I remember some years ago at a church I was at, and I learned of a lady who was in stage four cancer, and the diagnosis was death was imminent. It was, it was just a matter of weeks. And I hadn't had a chance to meet her yet. I was new to the church. And I finally got introduced to her. And I said, oh, well, you're Rita. Rita, how are you doing? And she paused for about three seconds. And she looked at me and said as honestly as she knew how to say, I am blessed. You see, we can say that because we know where our hope lies. 
even in the most difficult of experiences, even when we feel like God is doing something unmerited or unjust or undeserving, we can trust him. We can turn to him. And we can be confident that he is our hope, just as David was. Would you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks that you are a loving and a gracious and a faithful God. And Father, we also know that life can make it very difficult for us to be willing to praise you. Our view of you can be so distorted by our experiences, by our hardships, that we can at times question who you are and what you're doing. But God, I thank you that we really can trust in your sovereignty, that we really can rest in your goodness, and we can trust in your purposes, that you are simply bringing about our very best in a way that fits your plans and your purposes. For you are the potter and we are the clay. God, would you help us to submit to you, to trust you, to cry out to you, to be broken before you, to be dependent on your loving kindness and your mercy. Thank you for being a faithful God. Thank you for loving us with an everlasting love. Thank you for the inexhaustible grace we can experience each and every day as we cry out to you. May we be faithful to celebrate the glory and the holiness and the majesty of God through every season of every life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we sing a hymn of celebration?